On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. So TJ, we are going to dive right into part two of Freddie, because both of us this week have had kind of oh. monster mania weeks. Yes. I, I had to buy new furniture because my cats would constantly try to break into my furniture, so I had to like level up from the Ikea furniture because at this point all of my stuff was duct taped and you got two Classic. new dogs. I did. <laughs> Speaking of cats, Cheddar just... Is he trying to get under no, the Cheddar door? Cheddar just threw this, the, the cherry underneath the door of the pod loft and then I just see a mysterious <laughs> paw reach under and grab it back. <laughs> That's not creepy at all. And you have pups now, right? You got I two. I do. Two new pups. One is a six-year-old Dane who is an angel, and one who is a six-month-old bully mix who is demon spawn. R.I.P. Four pairs of sunglasses. Yes. Oh. All my favorite ones, too. Like I, hap- like, I happen to be wearing a pair that wasn't my favorite, and he found the favorites and destroyed them. So if you've ever seen a pair of my sunglasses and you said, hey, cool shades, they're all gone. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, so now I have this pair, which they're fine, but they're not anything cool. Like, you know me. I, I like them. I, I dig like weird, funky sunglasses. And these are just, I mean, they're fine. But I they're, think they're just cute. like, they're standard. Hmm. They are cute, but they're standard. They're not like my crazy sky blue reflective cat eyeglasses and they're not my crazy like purple tortoise shell meets regular plastic frame reflective rainbow glasses like I mean fair you know those, I mean but those are those will do yeah they're they're fine they'll work they're fine Th- yeah. these are the ones I wear when I need to be like nice when I look need to look nice fair enough like, yeah businessy or like a wedding I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm wearing sunglasses <laughs> like at a wedding, wedding, but there you go. <laughs> okay, so when we last left Freddie, he had already gone to three different schools, changed his name, lived in two different countries. He had already been through political strife and all this you know, crazy stuff, and he had just met up with Queen. And so... Well, he had just started singing with Queen. Yeah, he... yeah. Yeah, he, well, Queen actually, Queen in its actual... Queen became Queen. Yeah, in its yes. actual iteration hasn't occurred yet because, and I'll, I'll mention this in a moment, they're missing one key element of Queen. Ah. And so I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But uh, jumping in, Freddie had a musicality to him. 
but when he first started performing, he I think he lacked control and he had a very strange vibrato that kind of put people off. But of course, Freddie worked really, really hard to kind of come to the voice that we know of as Freddie's voice. Freddie had a natural musicality. It was a real gift, but he had something, he had a very strange vibrato when we first met, which is something people found rather distressing. But he applied himself and forged his own persona. He invented himself. The band had a number of bass players during that period that did not fit in with the band's chemistry. Because if you notice, we're missing one other very important key player in Queen, which would end up being the bass player. Right. Do you know who the bass player is now? Nope. You'll find out in about 10 seconds. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't until March 1971 that they settled on John Deacon and began to rehearse for their solo album. They recorded their first of their own four songs, Liar, Keep Yourself Alive, The Night Comes Down, and Jesus for a demo tape. No record companies were interested. It was also around this time that Freddie changed his name to Mercury, inspired by the line, Mother Mercury, Look What They've Done to Me, in the song, My Fairy King. On June the 2nd, 1971, Queen played their first show with the classic lineup of Mercury, May, Taylor, and Deacon at Surrey College outside London. And here's something cool that I think you're going to really like. Having attended art college, Mercury actually designed the Queen's logo. It's called the Queen's Crest. And shortly before they released uh, their first album, the logo combines all the signs of the Zodiac from all of the four members. Two lions for Leo, which is Deacon and Taylor, a crab for Cancer, May, and two fairies for Virgo, Mercury. The lion embraces the stylish leather Q, and the crab rests on top of the letters with flames rising directly above it. The fairies are each sheltering below a lion. And there's also a crown inside the queue, and the whole logo is overshadowed by an enormous phoenix. The whole symbol bears a passing resemblance to the, the royal coat of arms of the United Kingdom, particularly with a lion supporters. The original logo, as found on the reverse side of the cover of the band's first album, was simply a lined drawing. Despite this, Freddie claims to not believe in astrology. Hmm. Isn't that right. crazy? So, at this point, you might be asking... Four guys from Britain, why the name Queen? Well, yes, I was wondering why he wanted to be named Queen. <laughs> you blew past it, so I'm like, oh, okay, maybe, she, maybe it's not out there. Why? Years ago, I thought up the name Queen. It's just a name, but it's very regal, obviously, and it sounds splendid. It's a strong name, very universal and immediate. I thought that it had a lot of potential and was open to all sorts of interpretations. I was certainly aware of the gay connotations, but that was just one face of it. So really, he just picked it out because he thought it was cool, universal, and slightly controversial. Okay. Yeah. And that was, I, I googled that like 80 times and it kept coming up with the same thing. So, the band rehearsed tirelessly, playing several gigs in Imperial College. And then they were offered a chance to test a new recording studio called Delane Lay. In return for trying out the new equipment, they could also make free demo tapes. And they did, and no one was interested. No one was interested in their demos? Yeah, no one was interested in their demos. All right. But they actually got to sign a recording contract and a publishing and management agreement with Trident, which was also the one that Smile had actually recorded in. 
and that was in 1972, and they were paid just 60, I guess, euro? That's the L, right? Pound. Pound? Yep. I I know nothing. I know what a Zolti is, but for some reason I just like, the L doesn't process because I keep thinking Lira. No. So, Pounds. <laughs> Pounds. England. Pounds. Queen were given the, the, the downtime out of our studio time at Trident Studio, and they began to work on their first album. Okay, so hopping back to possible band names, because this is sort of fun. Brian wanted to call the band Grand Dance. Roger suggested Rich Kids. <laughs> and Freddie's suggestion was of Queen. Freddie's power of suggestion and confidence in the name reassured Brian and Roger that they finally had a name, and so they just relented and named the band Queen. I'm really glad they didn't go with Grand Dance. Me too. Like, what's your favorite band? Grand Dance? No. 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 Also, who wants to listen to a band called Rich Kids? Not me. That sounds snotty. Maybe a song. Song, yeah. But I don't want a t-shirt that says Rich Kids on it. No. Now, I'm going to mention someone who is incredibly important to Freddie... And it happened a little bit different in the film. This is the one woman that is a standout in Freddie's life. So in 1970, he began a relationship with a woman who would most likely be considered the love of his life, Mary Austin. Now, at the time that Freddie met Mary, he was already struggling with whether he was straight, gay, or bisexual, and he wasn't alone. Despite this, the discrimination of homosexuality, in the years previous, any gay man in the UK still faced hostility, abuse, and even prison in 1970. It was particularly tough for someone who was a young man who had been brought up with the values that Freddie had been and habits that not only reflected colonial Asia, but his parents' strict Parsi religion, a faith that, a faith that looked upon homosexuality as a form of demon worship. Can you imagine growing up where that's, that's the idea? is that your sexuality is a form of demon worship. That sucks. Yeah. When Freddie first met Mary, he was 24 and she was 19. At the time, neither could have imagined what the future would hold for them, but both as a couple and singularly as friends with a deep love for each other. Their real-life relationship was examined in Bohemian Rhapsody, of course, starring Rami Malek and Lucy Boynton in the role of Austin. And I think that Rami and Lucy are actually together now in real life <laughs> nice so <laughs> i think he like made like some sort of sly comment and like blew a kiss to her when he won the oscar for bohemian rhapsody oh. i was like that's cool though like i want that kid to find some love <laughs> those weird bug eyes sorry <laughs> so mean <laughs> i'm sorry rami malik's eyes look like they're in business for themselves they look like they're trying to escape his face. Aww. <laughs> Are you looking up a picture of Rami Malek? I know what Rami what Rami Malek looks like. <laughs> there's apparently they're still dating. I really I want them to stay together. Kind of like um, I really wanted Liam and Miley to work out, but they didn't. Wait, did they break up? Oh, they divorced. Yeah. My friend's going to be so happy. 
(laughs) (laughs) Why? Because she wants Liam. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) I have worked. And she never liked them together? I've worked with two of the Hemsworth brothers. Yeah. Liam's the only one I haven't worked with. There you go. Because I worked with Chris on Thor, and I worked with Luke on Westworld. Oh, okay. I was actually... (laughs) If you've seen pictures of me on Instagram, you know I look nothing like a Hemsworth. (laughs) But one day I actually had to stand in for the character of Ashley Stubbs. And so I had, like, the biggest shoes I own on trying to... And a a big black jacket (laughs) just trying to be as bulky as possible. (laughs) Because, I mean... (laughs) There's not a small Hemsworth. No, there is not. So, yeah. I'm a Hemsworth by proxy. Yay! There you go. <laughs> Back to Freddy. All my lovers ask me why they couldn't replace Mary, but it's simply impossible, Mercury once said of Austin. The only friend I've got is Mary, and I don't want anybody else. To me, she was my common-law wife. To me, it was a marriage. A little bit on Mary, she was born in London in 1951 and her father and mother came from a poor background and struggled with being deaf, making it difficult to support the family. So her father was actually deaf and there's a cute moment in Bohemian Rhapsody about that. So thankfully, Mary eventually found a boutique in the fashionable London neighborhood of Kensington. And I think it's Biba. I think that was the boutique she worked at. As luck would have it. Mercury had also taken a job at the clothing stall nearby, and in 1969, the pair met for the first time. The rather introverted and grounded teenager seemed happy to be the complete opposite of the larger-than-life Mercury. Austin herself recalled in a 2000 interview, he was very confident and had never been confident. Yet, despite their differences, there was an instant attraction between them, and within a few months, they had moved in together. Also, just for you, TJ, that Mary Austin's, like, super important, because when he died, he left the majority of his fortune to her. Nice. And he is the godfather to her children. So she was actually pregnant with her second child when he died. So he's the godfather to her first child. Yeah. When Mary Austin first struck up the relationship with Freddie Mercury, he was a long way off from the international fame and their lifestyle wasn't exactly glamorous. The two lived in a tiny studio apartment and they just did normal things like any other young people. Yet things continued to progress and both the couples, in both the couple's personal life and Mercury's career. Austin had been slow to warm to Mercury despite the fact that they had been living together almost immediately. She explained, it took about three years for me to really fall in love, but I had never felt that way about anybody. It was around the same time in 1972 that the Mercury's band Queen also signed their first real record deal and had their first hit. The couple was able to upgrade to a bigger apartment, but it wasn't until Mary Austin saw her boyfriend performing at his former art school that she realized that their lives were about to change forever. As she watched him perform before a cheering crowd, she thought, Freddie was just so good on stage. I had never seen him like that before. For the first time, I felt he is a star in the making. Austin was convinced that his newfound celebrity status would entice Mercury to abandon her. The same night that she saw him perform at school, she attempted to walk out and leave him with his adoring fans. Mercury, however, quickly chased after her and refused to let her leave. Austin recalls from that moment on, I realized I had to go along with this and be a part of it. As everything took off, I was watching him flower. It was wonderful to observe, and I was so happy that he wanted to be with me. Queen quickly rocketed to stardom with Austin by the singer's side all the way. Their relationship continued to progress, and on Christmas Day of 1973, Austin received an unexpected surprise. 
Mercury had presented Austin with a with a huge box containing a smaller box, which in turn contained a smaller box and so on. So like one of those like rush things. Like, box inside a box inside a box. Yeah, yeah. Like that joke that you play on your friends. Yeah. It's just like a big box inside of a, you know, with a little box, little box. It's rushed nesting doll of boxes. Yeah. Until Austin opened the tiniest box to find a small jade ring. She was so stunned that she asked which finger she had to put it on, to which he replied, ring finger, left hand, because will you marry me? Aww. I'm not going to cry. I love engagements. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not kidding. Like I love watching engagement videos on like Facebook and YouTube because they will always I have tears in my eyes right now. <laughs> and this is so stupid. <sighs> He's just watching me fall I'm not apart. arguing with you. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Austin was stunned but nonetheless agreed. More on that later. <laughs> we go back to her relationship. So let's go back to the band. In 1973, Trident and E&I signed a contract for a recording deal for Queen, and in July of that year saw the release of Queen, their first album. The band was offered a big break, their first major tour as a supporting band to Mott the Hopple. What? Mott the Hopple. See? All right, then. Yeah. It began in Leeds in November of 1973, and it was said by many of the people... During that tour, that Queen were more of a support act. Queen 2 was finally released in 1974, and I'm going to kind of break down these albums in just a little bit. But it was released in 1974, and it should have been earlier, but there was a minor printing error on the sleeve that Queen insisted that they have correct. The band embarked on their first headlining tour of Britain, starting in Blackpool in March of 74 and April 1974. The band embarked on their first ever U.S. tour. But... In May that year, whilst on tour, Brian collapsed with hepatitis and the band had to cancel the rest of their dates. Oh, no. Queen had amassed a portion of self-penned material with most of the songs being tried out in a live setting first, which is, we agreed, was like a really good idea. Mm -hmm. So you can see the audience reaction before you actually get it out into the masses. Yeah. Freddie and Brian were proving to be the most prolific songwriters. It was only a matter of selecting the most representative material to be released on their debut album. The remainder of the songs would be spread out sporadically over the following two albums. Not that Queen was short of material, but two of Smile's own songs were recorded during the sessions. Doing All Right, which was written by Brian and Tim, were released on the debut, while Polar Bear, written by Tim, was not. Additional material that was considered surplus to the requirements that included Freddie's Mad the Swine, which turned up on the 1991 Hollywood record debut of the reissue of the debut. The four-way collaboration of Stone Cold Crazy, a rock and roll melody which included Jailhouse Rock, The Blues Worked Out, See What a Fool I Have Been, and those are the three songs that would be released on their next album, Ogre Battle, White Queen as it begun, and The Seven Seas of Rye. And that, that Seven Seas of Ogre Rye. Ogre Battle? Ogre Battle. All right. They would also have songs like 39. Yeah. <laughs> I just like Leonard the name Island. Ogre Battle. Ogre Battle. It's like Spooky Tooth. Get off Spooky Tooth. I can't. <laughs> and the most sought after unreleased track in Queen's history is Hangman which was performed live up until 1975, but never released on an album. One other song which has caused much debate is Silver Salmon, apparently written by Tim Staple and recorded during these sessions, though some have also claimed that it was actually recorded during the News of the World sessions. 
And of course, I'll talk about News of the World later, but... The album was completed in the beginning of 1973, which by the time Triton had gotten Trident had gotten Queen a record deal with EMI in the UK and Elektra Records in the US, imaginatively titled Queen. Brilliant. <laughs> Wrap it, ship it. Yep. We're done. Best title ever. Queen. Oh wait until their second album. Queen 2. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so the rejected titles Included Deary Me, which was a favorite song of producer Roy Thomas Baker. The album was released in 1973 with a striking front cover by the friend of the band, Douglas Puddlefoot. <laughs> These names. The album received sparse attention and it only peaked at a disappointing 32 in its initial run in the UK, appearing late in March 74 by the time the band had released its second album. The album would finally achieve its peak success position at 24 in February of 75, thanks to their determination and the success of Killer Queen while in America. The album reached a respectable, for a relatively unknown British group, at 83. Isn't it crazy to think, like, their peak position was 83? Mm. And this is on initial release, of course. Like now, Maybe it's... not for, like, a debut album and an unknown relatively unknown you know yeah but i also like can't think of a time before queen like it's just not in my my thought process like you can't think of a time without janice joplin because we can think of a time without janice joplin i just don't like it exactly it's just hard to imagine like the start of these bands it's hard to imagine like a time when janice had to work to get her material out there the time before aerosmith was like fighting to get a record deal and that kind of thing. Like it's it's hard to think that there was a time where people didn't know right. Queen. Well, yeah. Queen's self-titled debut album shows the band that we know and love today with the group using multi-layered vocals and ringing guitar notes didn't actually start out that way or at least not as big. In 1973, their British glam was not so refined and all the things that made the band so identifiable we're barely concepts at this point, but there is a glimmer in the glam, and at times the roots of their sound begin to take shape. And this is why I included this, is because it also matters that the band's somewhat intensive use of multi-tracking, which was bigger and grander and more piled on than almost anything else that anyone was doing at the time. The results are so impressive at times that the band found it necessary to write in their disclaimer album liner notes, stating that there were no synthesizers used in the making of the record. They were a proud rock and roll band grabbing much inspiration from the kings of rock at the time, Led Zeppelin. And I think I go into this when I'm actually talking about Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, now everything is digital. Like, tape doesn't exist now. It does, but it's not as well, it's not as commonly used. Yeah, but back in the day, that's all that they used. And they layered so much on their albums that by the end of it, you could actually see through the tape. They would record and then they'd overdub and then they overdub and then they overdub and literally it would become so fragile that they were actually afraid that they were going to lose masters. Wow. Yeah. That's cool though. I like, I like analog, honestly. I think analog and vinyl just sound better than digital. It's more layered and it's more rich and it's more textured and I would prefer to listen to but you can do some amazing things with digital. You can do some amazing things with digital, but also it's not as pure as analog. Oh, no, I know. Like I say, I love analog. 
but it's really crazy. Like when we sit and record, my producer, when we're comping vocals and stuff, she can get down to a, a syllable when we're comping vocals. Like, oh, I like this part of the word better than this part of the word. And she can splice and dice down to a syllable. Oh, yeah. Or she can grab like if one take I was better enunciated than another, but we like the overall sound, she can actually take the letter, like the consonant of the enunciation to pull it in. Like, are you serious with this? (laughs) It's nuts. Yeah. And there are pros and cons to each medium. Yeah. But 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 I do enjoy analog. Yeah. Yeah. In the end... I feel like it's a more genuine tone with mm-hmm. with analog, and that's that's I do I'm I share your views on vinyl. Is things just sound better on a record? That's true. Like, and honestly, that's what I enjoy about some of that is is the little mess ups and the little the little things of like, oh, there's a weird thing here, or this is slightly out of tune, but it's all part of what makes it. And so you get a digital remaster. It's not quite the same. Yeah. So going back to Queen 1, it was originally printed in the respective music paper Melody Maker. (laughs) That is a tongue twister. And in the article written by Caroline Kuhn, the interviewer, which features a 14-page Rock Candy mag special, so this actually came out in retrospect. There was a there was a interview by Freddie Mercury about the first album discussing matters of subjects including Queen's sky-high ambitions, the stresses of touring and the band's songwriting process. Mercury was particularly revealing when it came to talk about the band's hit Killer Queen. I wrote Killer Queen in one night. I love that song by the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of the best. It's interesting too because if you if you can find a there is a version on Spotify because it's the version that's on my my Queen playlist, but it's a live version and they hadn't really. It sounds like they hadn't finished recording it because it stops after like a minute and fifteen seconds. What? Yeah, it's so weird because it stops before he does drop of a hat. Cheese is willing as beautiful as a pussy can. Yeah, yeah, weird. But it was live in Montreal. Which is in Canada. Canada. <laughs> Not to be confused with Monterey. Which is in New Zealand. California. I was close. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote Killer Queen in one night. He explained, I'm not being conceited or anything, but it just fell into place. I scribbled down the words in the dark one Saturday night, and then the next morning I got up and I worked them all together. And Sunday, that was it. I had gotten it. It gelled. It was great. <laughs> I don't think that that's conceded. Given that that interview took place 40 years ago, Mercury was also remarkably frank with his opinions on sexuality. I play the bisexual thing because it's something else. It's fun. I'd be doing myself an injustice if I didn't wear makeup because some people think it's wrong. Even to talk about being gay used to be obnoxious and unheard of, but those days are gone. There's a lot of freedom today, and you can put yourself across any way that you want to. Putting people in categories is unfair. You judge people on what they are. And I think that's poignant words even for today. Oh, yeah. 
As soon as the session for Queen finished in March of 73, the band took a brief break before jumping back in the studios to work on their follow-up. The creatively fertile band, bursting with ideas, entered Trident Studios in August to lay down songs that would become their second album, unimaginably titled Queen 2. Yep. Brian later admitted that the band considered calling it over the top, but this idea was discarded. In addition to songs that had been written around the same time that appeared on their debut album, including Father to Son, Ogre Battle, and Seven Seas of Rhine, as well as older songs written by Brian during his days in Smile, which was White Queen as it began, the songs were written. The songs that were written were far more adventurous than anything attempted before. Part of this creativity was due to the need to distinguish themselves from other bands at the time. Glam rock was an ever-emerging form of rock and roll, and with David Bowie and Roxy Music releasing albums that would define a generation, which was Aladdin Sane and For Your Pleasure, suddenly the style was becoming popular. <laughs> I laugh every time I say this name. Mott the Hopple becoming the ultimate glam band of the 70s, second only to T-Rex. That will make me laugh every time I say it. <laughs> Interestingly, Queen would support Mott on their winter 1973 UK tour and again on their spring 1974 uh, US tour. And it shouldn't go unmentioned that the band had been approached by Mr. Bowie to produce Queen 2, but the chameleon rocker had to decline. Their only collaboration wouldn't come until eight years later, so they actually approached David Bowie about producing Queen 2. But we'll get to that in the part two. Nice. Which is still one of my favorite, like, riding in the car raging songs. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Concept albums were also becoming a thing, especially with the March 1973 release of Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon. And while Queen 2 isn't strictly conceptual, there's a definite theme running through the songs, which was conferred, confirmed, however, indirectly, when it was first decided to place all of Brian's songs and Roger's sole contribution, The Loser in the End, on the first side titled Side White, and all of Freddie's songs on the second side titled Side Black. The first side is introspective and introverted as it benefits Brian's songwriting style. The multi-trek procession of his forms are a dirge-like introduction to the album, leading into the piano archipelago of father to son influenced in various ways by the who and led zeppelin white queen as it began follows and is probably one of brian's most startling and poignant ballads ever before leading into the self-sung some day one day which makes mention of misty castles and potential queenhood this fairy tale adventure would be further explored in freddie's songs the Loser in the End, which many fans consider to be ill-placed, rounds out the second sign and is another track heavily influenced by The Who. Freddie's songs form a melody in which each song segues in and out of each other effortlessly. Each song more complex than the last, starting with Freddie's frenetic ogre battle and leading into the light-hearted The Fairy Feller's Masterstroke, inspired by Richard Dad's painting of the same name. The Ballad Nevermore blends into the magnum opus, The March of the Black Queen, which would be a harbinger of a particular mock opera two albums later. So it's the beginnings of a concept album, which okay. like we were talking about concept albums before and how the streaming services have kind of messed with that concept of a concept album. 
because now you can't consume it straight through as the artist wants you to. But like Pink Floyd and the Who were kind of masters of concept albums, especially David Bowie. Like David Bowie was the king oh, of yeah. concept, like taking on those personas of Ziggy Stardust and the Thin White Duke. And and I'm geeking out right now. I think I'm gonna break. Calm down. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have been born way earlier than I was. Yeah, I was saying that last night. It's like, I was born in the wrong decade. But I do like my decade. And especially because I get all the cool stuff that's out now, as well as all the stuff that came before. Spotify was making me have a nervous breakdown. Or, well, more of a... more of a switch to Amazon Music. More of a midlife (laughs) crisis. No, I built a playlist called Just the Best. And it has close to 17... Hundred songs on it, Jesus! But it was going through all the ninety songs. So basically, songs. all of Spotify. Yes. Okay. But it was on a nineties kick the last two days, and it just sent me into some kind of weird tailspin of me facing my immortality because I was listening to Um Bop and realizing that I was like sixteen when the song was released, and I just wanted to go back in time. Yep. <laughs> The 90s were pretty good for music, too. The 90s were an interesting time for music. Like they, they, The 80s had been... Of course, this is a broad stroke. This isn't like a, a breakdown. I feel like 60s, 70s, and 90s. 60s, 70s, and 90s. The 80s gave way to something that was very surface and vapid. And while they did produce really good songs like fun songs, memorable songs. I think that with things like A, the rock and roll movement, B, the glam rock movement, and then the grunge movement, people had things that they wanted to say and stories that they wanted to tell that just didn't really exist in the 80s. No, that's it. Just no. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Great. Moving on. So funny enough, the album was delayed because of an oil shortage okay how does that relate well how do you think records are made vinyl what's vinyl made out of vinyl oil is it there's an oil based like when it's poured it's a liquid Ew. yeah and that was like a major thing like that oil shortage was a major like that's when you see like the pictures of those cars like lined up Waiting to get gas. Right. Because only particular places actually would get a gas. And there was a massive shortage. And um, and so things like that were affected. It's kind of like when the war effort happened. Right. And scrap metal yeah. became kind of a booming thing. And people had to like give up any ex. Like some people got rid of their cars and things like that just to help out the war effort. It was right. kind of the same kind of the same thing said with a couple question marks. So it was released in 19... 19- 74 delayed significantly due to an oil storage as well as the cover misprint to expectedly mixed reviews and the album peaked at number five in the UK and number 49 in the US while the solo single The Seven Seas of Rye reached number 10 in the UK the album was wrapped by an iconic by the album was wrapped by an iconic sleeve by Mike Rock with the band posed in a clockwork fashion with the maximum use of light and shade to create a moody appearance. Everybody knows this. If you've seen the video for Bohemian Rhapsody, the way that it starts, that's the album cover. Oh, okay. 
which they would actually use in the video for Bohemian Rhapsody. They'd use that because it's coming. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody is not here yet. Yes. So the band was so enamored with that image that they use it for the Bohemian Rhapsody promotional video the following year. So as if Queen 2 hasn't been experimental enough, the band shifted into new territories. Which the, I'm only going to talk a little bit about this album because, I mean, it's still Queen, but I don't think it's one of the best albums, which is sheer heart attack leaving behind the conceptual themes of its predecessor but allowing themselves enough freedom to try new things in addition to hard rock the band also explored glam rock early heavy metal and that's the song stone cold crazy which i'm pretty sure everybody's familiar with music hall bring back that leroy brown arena rock and that's in the lap of gods revisited and the bubblegum pop song killer queen and misfire two stately ballads Freddie's Lily of the Valleys and Brian's Dear Friends were also presented as is expected on any Queen album. John played almost all the guitars on his own compositions, most of the acoustic guitars on the song, and the double bass on Bring Back That Leroy Brown. In my opinion, it's not a bad album, it's just not the best. Alright, here's where things get fun for you because they move fast. I even wrote this down and I said, Alright, let's talk about the greatest album of all time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's Best not... of Queen? No. <laughs> Best album of all time. You can at me. You can fight me. That's my opinion. One of the greatest albums ever put to tape. Ever. Despite having two top ten albums and two top ten singles to the name, Queen found themselves in serious dire straits at the start of 1975. They had been touring and recording relentlessly for five years and none of their hard work had started to pay off which raised concerns for the band members john had married his steady girlfriend veronica in late january and had asked the queen's managers norman and barry sheffield for an advance of five thousand um pounds for the down payment of a house which was outright rejected freddie too had started living a had started to lavish more decorations upon his flat and he was purchasing a piano for his own personal use but and money advancements were again denied so like they couldn't get enough money to purchase a piano for Freddie. <laughs> like, right? That's crazy. That is crazy because they were number five. Yeah, in the UK, and they're touring and producing. And at this point, they're really rely. Like, I think they were always well, reliable. Unless their like, studio costs were obscene, which they might have been if they're doing all those overdubs. Oh yeah, and they were running over on their recording time. So, like, they mm-hmm. say, you know, okay, this album can be recorded in three weeks and it takes some time is six... expensive i can only imagine yeah it's it's expensive health issues were also starting to plague the band and though brian had recovered nicely from his bout with hepatitis and gangrene uh. in the summer of 74 now freddie's voice was starting to cause problems several dates on the u.s tour had to be canceled so that he could relax and save his throat it was at first said that he had nodules that had formed on his lymph nodes and that three months of rest was the only cure. The second option revealed that his throat was merely excessively swollen and only one or two weeks was necessary. So that's good. So he actually only had to take a, a rest for, you know, two or so weeks. Right. Because nodules, like, you actually have to go in and have surgery, oh, right? I know. I live in fear of that constantly. It's a real issue. I get it. Well, didn't Julie Andrews, didn't mm-hmm. Julie Andrews have no vocal nodes and... It was a huge deal when she sang in the Princess Diaries 2 yeah. because, because it was the first time she had sung. It takes a long time to recover from that, and some people never get their voices back. No, oh, that's so sad. I'm, well, I'm glad that Julie got 
better because ah, her voice is just so beautiful. Nonetheless, well, but even then, I mean, it's still not the same as it was. Oh, I, I, yeah, you know. Nonetheless, the band were understandably exhausted in the spring of 1975 after they finished up their lengthy tour, which included for the first time ever a tour of Japan. Things finally came to a head with the Sheffield brothers, and the band enlisted the services of Jim Beach, who initiated negotiation to sever all ties with their former management. The process dragged on for quite some time, but they would ended up having a positive of being a positive thing for the band in the long run. Though it cost them $100,000 at the time, their former management would save 1% of the royalties on Queen's next six albums. So that's a good thing. Yeah. It would cost them a lot of money up front, but in the end, I mean, retrospectively looking back, like that was a good thing for them because they are like one of the biggest rock bands in the world. But wait, 1% of their royalties? That's all they got? To sever, no. The, 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 yeah. The Sheffield brothers who were there. Oh, okay. Yeah. They only got 1%. Okay. So that's how they negotiated their way out of financial dire straits with them. Right. Which, by the way, dire straits is how they got their name. Oh, okay. They were legitimately in dire straits. Yeah. And then they decided to name their band that. Nice. Just so you know. Okay. (laughs) With this in mind, they went into the recording studio, not Trident, to commence work on their fourth album, Brian would later call our Sergeant Pepper. The band's desire to experiment had grown exponentially since their previous recording sessions, and it became another case of making it or breaking it. When they had passed the proverbial third album litmus test, they needed a massive hit single in which to submit their name firmly as a household item. Enter. I'm so excited to say this. Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> <laughs> Much has been said about the song, so there will be no attempts here to decipher it, but simply said, Bohemian Rhapsody is one of the first true integrations of pomp and circumstance in the rock world. While many records had a combined operatic sound with rock, see The Man Who Sold the World by David Bowie or Tommy by The Who, this was the first time that opera as an art form had merged with rock. The song took three weeks to record from start to finish, and as legend has stated, which was later confirmed by Brian and Roger, there were so many overdubs that had been added to the tape that it actually started to wear out. When the band held the tape to the light, they were alarmed to be able to see straight through it. Girl, this is so cool. <laughs> if you don't know what Bohemian Rhapsody is, just wait till the end of this episode because that's going to be the song that goes at the end of the episode. Incredible song. Absolutely incredible. Do you remember the first time you heard Bohemian Rhapsody? Honestly, I think it was in Wayne's World. (laughs) I think that's a lot. That's the thing is like that's a lot of our generation got introduced to it in Wayne's World. I did not because my brother, when I was seven, made me sit down and listen to Queen 2, Sheer Heart Attack, and Night at the Opera. And he wouldn't let me leave (laughs) until I finished listening to it. There is a video... My brother has it somewhere of me at age like seven or eight. We made a music video with my brother's camcorder. And so I'm Brian May in the video because I made my own uh, out of like construction paper or not poster paper. Mm -hmm. I made my own guitar, including a whammy bar. (laughs) Nice. And so it's just us like jumping on the bed to Bohemian Rhapsody. 
Nice. <laughs> and I really want my brother to find that video. We did, oh, we did um, in college, we had a showcase, like all the, the whole class of singers had a showcase and we did, we did Bohemian Rhapsody and part of it, we had these blow up guitars that we pulled out during the guitar solo and me and my friend were doing like fake, fake guitar solos I know the on blow the up guitars. guitars, like the red ones, like the red ones that you like, yeah, it's yeah. the blow up ones. I think it was one was pink and one was it was like hot pink and neon green. And I had yeah, and we sat and we pretended to be guitar soloing while the instructor at the showcase, you know, was playing piano on it. Like and we were kind of singing the guitar solo while we were <laughs> faking <laughs> it. Yeah. <laughs> If, if that doesn't go in the episode it's definitely going on the blooper reel <laughs> uh, at the end of the session the band decided to take a chance and issue the six minute magnum opus as their first single from the album but i had elected not to edit this song down to a more consumable length for radio play because Remember, at the time, things like Baba O'Reilly really hadn't been introduced, and anything over three minutes, the radio wouldn't touch. Right. It's kind of the same now. It's kind of the same now, and you do have exceptions, because you do have people playing Freebird. You know, the one song that I don't understand why they cut down, and we were actually talking about this the song the other day, was in Blinded by the Light. I, <laughs> I don't understand their cut. And so I see where Queen is coming from. If you cut it down, it doesn't make sense. Right. Like, where would you cut? And so in Blinded by the Light, they actually cut out the piano portion, which takes away from the song. Yeah. But but basically, at this time, the radio wasn't going to touch it, but they refused to cut it down. Wrapped up like a deuce. Sorry. That's fine. <laughs> Even the ever-competent Freddie was starting to doubt himself, so he actually took his song over to his friend Kenny Everett, then a DJ on the BBC, and asked him for his opinion of it. After hearing the song for the first time, an astonished Kenny responded with, oh, forget about this. This could be a half hour. It's still going to be number one for centuries. Freddie then gave Kenny the tape, but made him a promise not to play it on the air. Kenny promised it first, but ever the cheeky one, he played it any, he played it anyway. <laughs> 14 times over two days. Oh, my. Which initially horrified the band, but caused a huge demand for this the song, resulting in a rush release single on October 31st, 1975. Wow. And I'm going to talk about this in the What's the Difference? Because in the movie, it's kind of like, um, oh, darling, you shouldn't play this. You shouldn't play this album. It's terrible no one will oh you should like it's such a cheeky scene and kenny's like i shouldn't never and then he (laughs) so it's very cute but i'm gonna touch i touch on that in the in the next episode i was gonna say you're giving away the whole last episode i am (laughs) i might cut that part out in fact but yeah so thanks to kenny everett it was a rush release single Again, I feel like Halloween's a really good day for Queen. 
Of course, we're getting ahead of ourselves there. There are many other good songs on Night at the Opera, other than Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> and screw them. Just let's talk about Bohemian Rhapsody. There's, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but then there's Death on Two Legs. <laughs> A song written by Freddie about his former managers, though, to protect himself legally. They never said a name. Rogers, I'm in love with my car. <laughs> Brian's sweet lady, Freddie's lazing on a Sunday afternoon and seaside rendezvous were affectionate nods to the 1920s music hall and vaudeville genre, while Brian's good company was reminiscent of a glorious number by the Kinks, released in the late 1960s, John's You're My Best Friend, which is, which is like, You're My Best Friend is a great song and one of the best directors in my opinion, is a man named Edgar Wright. You should know who he is. Tracy, TJ, you, you don't have to know who this is. Edgar Wright. I probably don't. You probably know the names of his movies, but I don't think you would have seen any of them. He did uh, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, World. I End. love those movies. Do you? Yes. Really? Yes. I've wow. seen them several times. Well, Edgar Wright's the director. Oh, Okay. But he, he directed those movies, but he uses Queen's music in such a way. He does. That, it's great. That Shaun of the Dead ends with my best friend, and then they, they have the big fight. To I love Don't it. Stop me now. I love that part. It's the best. Kill the Queen. <laughs> what? What? The jukebox. It's on random. <laughs> I love those movies. They're the best so movies. So much. I love them. I love Edgar Wright. What was the third one? There was World's End. Okay, I haven't seen that one. Coronado Trilogy? Yeah, it's World's End. Yeah, I haven't seen that one yet. Okay, the thing about World's End is it's a good movie. You will not like it upon first viewing. I can tell you that right now. If you're a fan. You didn't think I'd seen Hot Fuzz and. No, 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 no. I I didn't like World's End on first viewing. Will didn't like World's End on first viewing. Well, maybe I'm an enigma. And then we. Rewatched it and rewatched it and rewatched it, and it grew on us. And now I love it. It's just one of those films that, like, upon first viewing, it's not that great. And then you, you, I'm not going to rewatch it if I don't like it the first time. We give it a shot because we love, like, I love Simon Pegg not as much as I love Nicolas Cage. Don't get it twisted, but I love Simon Pegg and I love Nick Frost. And I think when they get together, they're just. Magic. They're brilliant together. They're just—I just love, I love them so much in Hot Fuzz. God, like I so love, good. I love Nick Winter in Frost. Hot, Nick Frost. Uh, Nick, sorry, Nick Frost in Hot Fuzz. I absolutely love him, especially with when he gets his damn little monkey. And <laughs> <laughs> I just, I love him but so there's, much. There's things about Hot Fuzz though. When you rewatch Hot Fuzz. You pick up on something every single time. I mean, oh, yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Hot Fuzz, legitimately, over the, like the last 15 years. Also, what appears on this album is seriously, it, it rotates between my first and second favorite Queen song. Between It's between Radio Gaga and this song, which is Love of My Life. And I love the song. I don't think I know so, either of those songs. Um, I'm going to have to play you Love of My Life. I'll listen to it. Because it breaks my heart. And when I saw them in concert, <laughs> it was one of the it was one of the three or four times that I just openly wept. Because 
of course, I saw them after Freddie had died, and they have Adam Lambert on tour with them now. But you can find their Hollywood Bowl performance online. Like, a bunch of people just recorded the whole concert. So you can actually find the whole concert online. But when they perform Love of My Life, Brian comes out, and he just sits on a bench, and he just has his guitar. And it's an acoustic guitar. It's not the Red Special. And halfway through... The stage lights up and they show a giant picture. It, well, it's a video of Freddie singing that last part of the song. And oh God, I thought I was not going to be able to breathe. <sighs> but yeah, Love of My Life is on that album. And that was written by Freddie for Mary. And that would endure and endear in nearly every country for the next 30 years. And I argue forever. That song is gorgeous it's i i just had to stop myself from using the f word because it's it's the song that that just anyway (laughs) other epics constructed during the sessions were brian's the prophet song which recalls a particular dream that he had in which mother earth hatches revenge against her inhabitants clogging in at over eight minutes the song was reportedly considered for single release at one point though the lengthy vocal interlude would likely have to have been cut. And another one of Brian's songs, the Space Folk 39, which is probably like my least favorite song on the album because it's just weird, would turn up as the B-side of You're My Best Friend in May of 1976 and was two songs on the album that featured Brian on lead vocals. So you can see the argument that I'm making that this is one of the best albums ever recorded. I thought you said that about the last one. No. This oh, we're, okay. we're still on we're still on Night at the Opera. I know. I thought you said that about the last, the third album. Not no. Night Sheer Heart Opera. Attack is not my favorite. Oh, okay. I said exactly the opposite. <laughs> I oh. said it's still a good album. It's not my favorite though. Oh, okay, fine. The grand finale was a suitably over-the-top arrangements of Britain's national anthem, "God Save the Queen," which had been sung by audiences during Homeland concerts when they were waiting for the band to enter the stage. The song had actually been recorded during sessions for Sheer Heart Attack at the Rockfield Studios and used from uh, 1974 until August 1986, and again during the Queen and Paul Rogers tour to herald the end of Queen's shows. And that's when, like, Freddie would come out with, like, the crown and the big cape thing. Okay. And he'd come out and he'd take the crown off, and it was a big show. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, you, you know <laughs> it. You know it. You just don't know you know it. Okay. The album was released in 1975, a mere fortnight after the Bohemian Rhapsody single shot to the U.S. charts, or sorry, the U.K. charts, and reached number one in the U.K. and number four in the U.S., the first time for any of Queen albums had broken the top ten. Bohemian Rhapsody reached number one in the U.K. and number nine in the U.S. with the follow-up single, You're My Best Friend, peaking at seven in the U.K. and 16 in the U.S. The album had been privy to several re-releases along the way, including the 1991 Hollywood Records, which saw the re-release uh, and remixes of You're My Best Friend and I'm In Love With My Car tacked on as bonus tracks. The album was also mixed into 5.1 surround sound and released on DVD A in 2000 and 2002 with the two-disc 30-year anniversary edition featuring both a remastered CD and the DVD A, which I don't think we could get in our region. What is DVD A? Well, let's find out. So DVD A is DVD audio. Okay. And they're worth picking up, like picking up the 2005 documentary 
the making of Night of the Opera, which is officially on my Amazon wish list, which features uh, Roger and Brian, along with assorted individuals, producers, engineers, peers, record executives, and rock critics discussing the album at length. The band knew rather early on that they had something special on their hands and invited the press for a special hearing of the album only days before they were due to go on tour again. The album was still being mixed hours before the playback, and further tweaks and edits were made afterwards, but the general consensus is that Queen had recorded a killer album that blew their previous three albums out of the water, and more than 30 years on, it is hard to disagree. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to fight. That's my, it's one of the six vinyls that I have. (laughs) It was like, I own more vinyl than that, but actually I bought Will a bunch of, vinyl albums to try to like get him excited and so (laughs) i tried to do that i failed yeah i failed and then one of the cats broke the lid on my record player whoops so i don't have a record player currently but they just broke the lid yeah but when they did it it the arm bent oh yeah and then to polish off the the final part of this episode um i actually just wanted to give a bunch of fun facts about bohemian rhapsody so they're a little short blurbs freddie mercury wrote the lyrics and there's been a lot of speculation as to their meaning many of the words appear in the quran bismillah is one of those and it literally means in the name of allah the word scaramouche means a stock character that appears as a boastful coward and beelzebub is one of the many names given to the devil mercury's parents were deeply involved in zoroastrianism and the arabic words do have a meaning in that religion His family grew up in Zanzibar, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, but were forced out by the government in an upheaval in 1964, and they moved to England. Some of the lyrics could be about leaving his homeland behind. Guitarist Brian May seems to suggest that when he said in an interview about about the song, Freddie was a very complex person, flippant and funny on the surface, but he concealed his insecurities and problems in squaring up his life with his childhood. He never explained the lyrics, but I think he put a lot of himself into that song. Another explanation is not to do with Freddie Mercury's childhood, but his sexuality. It was around this time that he started coming to terms with his bisexuality and his relationship with Mary Austin as it was falling apart at this time. Whatever the meaning is, we may never know. Mercury himself remained tight-lipped, and the band agreed not to reveal anything about the meaning. Mercury himself stated, it's one of those songs which has such a fantasy feel about it that I think people should just listen to it, think about it, and then make up their own minds as to what it means to them. He also claimed that the lyrics were nothing more than random rhyming nonsense. When asked about it by his friend Kenny Everett, who was the London DJ that kind of is responsible for getting Bohemian Rhapsody as high as it did. The band were keen to let listeners interpret the music in their own personal ways rather than impose their own meanings on the song. And May stated that the band agreed to keep the personal meaning behind the song private out of respect for Mercury. Mercury may have written one of my favorite parts, which is where Roger sings Galileo over and over and over again. Mm Mm-hmm into the lyrics for the benefit of Brian May, who was an astronomy buff, and who in nineteen or sorry, in two thousand seven earned a PhD in astrophysicist. Astrophysics? That's a word. Earned a PhD <laughs> in astrophysics. Galileo is a famous astronomer, known for being the first one to use a refracting telescope. Queen made a video for the song to air on top of the pops, a popular British music show, and they actually had appeared on top of the pops 
a couple years before. Right. But that but the reason why they actually made the music video was it's too complex of a song to perform live or more accurately to be mimed live on top of the pops. Also, the band would be busy on the tour schedule and um, kind of be unable to appear on the show. So they wouldn't have the time to appear on the show. So they just made a music video for it. Nice. Yeah. The video turned out to be a masterstroke, providing far more promotional punch than a one-off live appearance. Top of the Pops ran it for months, keeping the song atop the charts. This started a trend in the UK of making music videos for songs to air in place of live performances. So again, where's Queen? Right at the front. I want my MTV. <laughs> Video killed the radio star. The Buggles told me that. It's true. <laughs> Funny enough that you say about MTV. When the American Network... Because MTV doesn't play music videos anymore? No. <laughs> But when the American Network MTV launched in 1981, most of their videos came from the British artists for this reason, because they already had a backlog that they had been doing for years. Okay. I miss when, when MTV was actually about music. Yeah, me too. The group had previously appeared on the show twice, uh, one to promote the Seven Seas of Ride and uh, the Killer Queen singles. The video was very innovative. It was the first time where visuals took precedent over the song. And like I was saying before, it's actually based on their Queen 2 cover album with the four members looking up into the shadows. And it was directed by Bruce Gowers and it was shot in three hours for 3,500 pounds at the band's rehearsal space. If you haven't seen the video, it's trippy. It's weird. They do these like crazy image, like, you know, when you're looking into the infinite, the infinite mirror mm -hmm. and it's just like the same image over and over again. It's pretty crazy. The song got a whole new audience, we already talked about this, when it was used in the 1992 movie Wayne's World. Yeah. Starring Mike Myers and Dana Carvey in the film. Wayne and his friends used it to lip sync into the car, the Mirthmobile, spasmatically head bobbing at the guitar solo, which now, anytime that someone plays Bohemian Rhapsody, someone will headbang. Uh, yeah. Usually me. <laughs> Anybody that does that at a karaoke bar... Like, just look around and see how many people start headbanging during that one part. Mm -hmm. um, as a result of the move, it was re-released as a single in the U.S. and charted at number two. Do you know what song kept it out of the number one position? No. Crisscross's Jump. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Crisscross will make you jump, jump. jump. Dad will make you jump, jump. jump. Daddy Mac will make you jump, jump. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, we were talking about this before, but at 5 minutes and 55 seconds, this is a very long song for radio consumption. Queen's manager at the time, John Reed, played it to another artist that he managed, who promptly declared, Are you mad? You'll never get that on the radio. That artist was Elton John. <laughs> <laughs> According to Brian May, record company management kept pleading with them to cut the song down, but Freddie refused. There was a single version released only in France on a 7-inch, cut down to 3 minutes and 18 seconds, edited by John Deacon. But beyond the initial pressing of this French single, the only version recognized is the album version at 5 minutes and 55 seconds. In 1991, there was a re-release in the UK shortly after Freddie Mercury's death, and that, again, went to number 1, with the proceeds going to the Terence Higgins Trust, which Mercury supported. 
Elton John performed with Axl Rose at the, the 1992 Concert for Life in London held at Wendley Stadium. It was a tribute to Freddie Mercury, who, of course, died of AIDS the year before. And in 2001, Elton John got together with Eminem, who, like Axl Rose, was often accused of being intolerant and homophobic. And then they performed Eminem's Stan at the Grammys. So, good things coming out of it. Thanks to this track, and this track alone, Night of the Opera, is the most expensive album ever made at the time. They used six different studios to record it. Queen did not use any synthesizers on the album, which is something that they are very proud of. And here's one that is absolutely my favorite, but I know you haven't seen the show yet. Or I don't even think you've read the book yet, but I know you're a reader. But Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett use some of the lyrics in their book, Good Omens. Nice. And the main character, Crowley, plays it in his car all the time. They also refer to other Queen songs, but it's mostly Bohemian Rhapsody. That was my favorite part of the show. <laughs> I, was, I was like, once they introduce Crowley and they're playing Queen music underneath it, I'm like, I'm going to love this show. Yeah, I did notice. I did I did see the first episode or two, uh, and I saw that part. I was like, oh, there you go. Yep. There's LD. LD's going to love this. <laughs> yeah. And I put this in just for you. For me. Yep. In 2009, the Muppet Studio released a video featuring the Muppets performing this song. Yeah. It was the first web video for the Muppets, and it was extremely popular. The video actually was viewed over 7 million times the first week it was up. And the furry ones changed the song a little bit, omitting the lyrics that begin with Mama Just Killed a Man, and it's just animals screaming Mama over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) And so that is where we're going to leave you today with Freddie Mercury Part 2. I know that was a lot. I'm really sorry, TJ. Part 2 of Part 1. Part 2 of Part (laughs) 1. Part 6 of my life. I don't know. This is... there's Part Infinity of Infinity... Infinity Plus. (laughs) This is how this podcast dies. Just... (laughs) It's with Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury. This is going to be a 41-year-old podcast. Our average 256 just... <laughs> listeners slips down to two <laughs> this month. But they're two really loyal fans. Yes. <laughs> so uh, next week, I'm going to be talking about his years up until what I consider the greatest 20 minutes of rock and roll history ever. Come at me, bro. and so that's what we're going to be covering next week so thank you guys so much for checking out this episode please make sure to check out next week's episode it's going to be awesome i promise tracy isn't going to kill me this time i hope uh and uh, i think it should be explained somewhere in the in our time and space exactly what happened when i made you promise me that this would be three parts and no more Go ahead. And, you, and you tricked me by just making part one so long that we had to split it into two parts and make the entire month of September Freddie Mercury month. Mercury month. Because <laughs> this was her plan all along. And I made her, I tried to make her keep it to three parts only. And she trickstered. But on the plus side, I know how busy you are with the live shows uh-huh. and the puppies. And so Don't I pretend just. Don't this is about me. It's my birthday month. 
It's my gift no. to myself. Oh, <laughs> you get a birthday week maximum, lady. No, actually, the way that we count it in oh. our house, and you can adopt this too. Oh, you can adopt here this we too. Go. Is Where that are my waiters? The, it is your birthday. Sh- thick. It is your birthday from the time you get your first present to the time you get your last present. What kind of garbage is that? And my mom just sent me my first birthday present. Where are my waiters? It's getting thick in here. It's <laughs> getting deep. Uh, no one will help you. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think we're, we're doing a great job on the show, which I hope you, you do think that, um, and you're feeling frisky, you can give to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can find us on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. You can find us on Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. We're on Instagram at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. Woo! So, again, thank you so much, guys. That's about it. So, TJ. Yeah. What kind of sunglasses do you really want? The funkier, the better, baby. Sweet. All right. <laughs> Bye. Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. I'm just a Go little high, little low. Anywhere the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. To me, Mama just killed a man, put a gun against him. Triggered now, he's dead. Mama, life had just begun, but now I've gone and thrown it all away. Mama, ooh, didn't mean 
little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the bandango? Thunderbolt and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo, 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 Galileo Figaro. I'm just a poor boy and nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family, sparing his life from this monstrosity. Mamma mia, mamma mia, let me go. Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me, for me, for me. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. 
from assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.